Thank you for listening to this recording of Forum One Divided Worlds of Time, a panel discussion produced by the Art Gallery of South Australia for the 2018 Adelaide Biennial of Australian Art Divided Worlds. Facilitated by the Art Gallery of South Australia's Assistant Director, Lisa Slade, this panel looks at the temporal as a key agent in the dividing and uniting of worlds. Panellists include participating Adelaide Biennial artists Julie Goff and Timothy Horn. Good morning, everyone. This is a very impressive crowd for 10am on a Saturday morning after a very big night. Thank you so much for joining us. My name's Lisa Slade and I'm the Assistant Director here at the Gallery. And I'd like to commence by acknowledging that we meet, of course, on Ghana country. And I would like to acknowledge Elders past, present and, of course, future. To do that this morning seems particularly special in the context of the panel discussion that I'll be chairing. We're looking at temporality at time and its influence on the practice of two of our exhibiting artists. But before we kick off with the panel discussion, I would like to introduce Erica Green, our exhibition curator for Divided Worlds, the 2018 Adelaide Biennial of Australian Art. We will be recording all of our sessions over the Vernissage weekend. Please let us know if you're having trouble hearing. We would love this to be a a dialogue, so we will actually be calling for questions during our forum, and we would like to be recording those questions as well. So just uh, bear with us so that we can ensure that everything is captured. We're doing that because we know that there'll be, this is a fantastic audience, but we know that there'll be a broader audience and an audience into the future as well for such sessions. It is an enormous privilege and undertaking to pull off a big exhibition, and we see it as a great opportunity to also bring you, the audience, the most important part of the equation, into the discussion for you to have a chance to meet with our artists and hear from our curator. So over the next couple of days, you'll have a chance to participate in panel discussions. We've got artists talking. We kick off with the Ken sisters, who will be, uh, I imagine, they will be performing in Ma with Gankura Gankuraku, the work that sits at the top of Gallery 7, a work that translates from Binjara to mean a sister's story. And then we'll run through the afternoon of a series of artist talks in the exhibition. Things get pretty exciting then at the West End, where, of course, the Adelaide Biennial is in inflorescence, both in the Jam Factory and at the Samstag Museum. There's also the launch of the exhibition at ACE. And then tomorrow, activity continues at the West End and then finishes back at the extreme east in the Adelaide Botanic Garden. Now, I can't even keep across the program. That's how (laughs) intricate and complex and exciting it is. This is what you need if you don't have it yet. You don't need to get up now and grab one, but this is the map. It's the map of activity and it's the map of Adelaide. Not that I think we need one, but just in case. (laughs) So make sure you grab one of these. The other thing worth mentioning, come on in. The other major offering worth mentioning and something that's new to the Adelaide Biennial is the wonderful program called Making Worlds at the Mercury Cinema. And Erica has worked with her artists to put forward a whole lot of films 
in response to the artist's interests and to the curatorial rationale of the exhibition. And those films will be screening, kicking off from today, but running over the duration all the way through, uh, across the duration into May, the exhibition. Now a bit of housekeeping. There are toilets through here. We do like to run these things as informally as kind of raking seating allows, rake seating allows. Very happy for you to go and grab a coffee, come back in. It's a big day. So do what you need to, to get the most out of it and to make yourselves comfortable. Can I ask you to join me in welcome, welcoming and congratulating Erica Green. Thank you very much, Lisa, and good morning, everybody. It was very hard to tear myself away from some of the opening festivities last night. Sorry. Is that all right? But it's good to be up early, up and about early, on the first day of the Biennial's Vernissage Weekend events. All the forums this weekend, as Lisa mentioned, have been designed and organised by the Art Gallery of South Australia obviously taking issues around the Divided Worlds exhibition as their starting point. It seems clear, however, that the forums will have a life of their own and, in an interesting way, will most probably diverge from the grand curatorial narrative that I originally conceived for the exhibition. In fact, I acknowledged that likelihood in my catalogue essay when I wrote, as much as artists may enjoy the exchange of ideas, they will, in the end, pursue their own vision. So I appreciate the opportunity to just very briefly talk about a few of my own ideas that drove the development of the Divided Worlds exhibition and which might give everyone a little bit of context. The 2018 Adelaide Biennial has been conceived as a unified event designed around one curatorial vision and presented across four venues. To the east, the Adelaide Botanic Gardens and to the west, the Jam Factory and Samstag Museum of Art, and at its heart, the Art Gallery of South Australia. All the venues are joined along the North Terrace Cultural Boulevard. There is also, as Lisa mentioned, a specially curated season of films at Adelaide's Mercury Cinema, located right next door to the Jam Factory. The Divided World's title acknowledges that we live in troubled times, where our conflicted human society is beset by inescapable differences, such as differences of race, religion, ideology, opportunity and power, and differences of sexuality. It is our differences that lie at the very heart of human adversity. Moreover, it is our inability as individuals to reconcile these things and our failure to achieve wise, effective, bipartisan community solutions to important problems. That suggests a growing spectre of societal and environmental catastrophe. Some of the artists in the Divided Worlds exhibition were invited to participate, especially because their work directly engages with, the, with these ideas of a conflicted society. For example, Vernon R. Key, whose firm position of protest express, expresses Aboriginal discontent and Caleb Sabsabi, who documents the destruction and horror of war. However, notwithstanding the need to illustrate the reality of those legitimate concerns and strongly felt artistic positions, my overarching vision for the exhibition 
was that it should principally represent the idea of difference as something positive and natural. That in fact, the condition of difference is inescapably the way things are fundamentally. And at a very human individual level, should be consciously and pragmatically embraced. So in presenting the visions of a very wide range of individual artists, the Divided Worlds exhibition not only offers a rewarding encounter with incredible diversity, but uppermost in this idea of difference, presented as a cultural expression of the natural order and, in fact, as an unequivocal human strength. This is my thesis, that the path to successful future civilizations lies in our ability to embrace the reality of difference and that art and culture will be an essential and influential companion to this process. I like to think that Divided Worlds is a sophisticated exhibition that speaks effectively to the importance of that idea. In my catalogue essay, and to add some interest, I pragmatically sorted each of the artists into four conceptual worlds. These were firstly the world of time, the cosmos, evolution and nature. Then the world of human beings, our society, our past, our future. Thirdly, the world of harmony, spirit and love. And finally, the world of speculation and imagination. It would take too long to explore why I've placed each artist into these various worlds. But just to give you a sense, the Ken sisters, John R. Walker, Hayden Fowler, Patricia Piccinini, Maria Fernanda Cardoso, and Tamara Dean are, in my imagination, aligned to the world of time, the cosmos, evolution, and nature. Whereas Angelica Masiti, Emily Floyd, Caleb Sobsabi, Vernon Arkey, Patrick Pound, Julie Goff, Barbara Cleveland, and Cordero Healy have an affinity to the world of human beings, our society, our past and future. In the world of harmony, spirit and love, you will find Lindy Lee, Christian Thompson, Douglas Watkin, Kirsten Coelho, Tim Edwards, Kai Lu and Amos Gebhardt. And for me, at least, the world of speculation and imagination. This is this um, world undoubtedly is e exemplified by Roy Nanda, Christian Burford, Pip and Pop, Ghost Patrol, Lisa Adams, Tim Horn, and Louise Heerman. Naturally, these worlds are a confection of mine. Of course, each of the artists have identities that transcend my imaginary categories and could comfortably be moved conceptually from one world to another. Just finally, a more simple description of the exhibition, one that I presented to the collector groups around the country when we were fundraising, was to ask people to imagine an allegorical prism through which light shines, and that brings forth a marvellous coloured spectrum, the divided worlds. A colourful spectrum of light is a good alternative starting point for approaching this very complex exhibition, which offers both challenges and a vast range of possible meanings. As I say, it's an exhibition of diversity where the real experience is to be had from taking the walk. I'm confident that you will find that we have a marvelous selection of artists and I hope that you will 
as you walk around the exhibition are thrilled, challenged and wondered and wonder at this fabulous group of 30 artists. Have a nice day and I hope you enjoy yourselves at The Divided Worlds. Thank you very much. Thank you, Erica. Just to give you a sense of who's in the room. Oh, sorry, I'm very noisy, aren't I? Is that okay now? Yeah, you don't step. Okay. <laughs> Hands up if you're an artist, and, and by that I don't necessarily mean exhibiting in Divided Worlds. Please put your hand up if you are, but put your hand up if you're also an artist, because I think it's very interesting to think about the composition of our audiences. Hands up if you are from interstate and you're a collector, a supporter, a writer, an academic, etc. Brilliant. Wonderful. Hands up if you are a scholar here or away, uh, if you are a student or an academic. Brilliant. Hands up if you are one of our volunteers, our wonderful front of house volunteers, our gallery guides, or one of our members. Great. It's a very neat pie, isn't it? Yeah, not that I'm that fond of a pie chart, but that was very, very neat. Okay. Now, I'm very fortunate not just to be kick-starting the, the panel discussions, but also to be working with two of the artists that I had the honour of writing about. And I am going to be with you, I'm going to be listening to the words of Timothy Horn and Julie Goff this morning. The way the panel will work is that uh, Timothy will kick off and each of the artists will present on their work through the theme of time and then we'll have a discussion. I guess a few things came to mind in preparing for this. The idea of time not as an arrow but perhaps as a boomerang. The idea of time as something which threads back on itself, which perhaps is not so much a divided world as one that is almost infinitely reflexive. I think there's something particularly Australian about the way that time works, and that seems like an absurd statement, but I've been thinking about modernism's refusal of the rear guard, of the rear view, if you like, and postmodernism's embrace. And I've been thinking about someone like Rex Butler, for instance, scholar Rex Butler, who considers that Australian art history is inherently revisionist, that we've had a tendency, a kind of predilection for looking back. Part of that may well be to deal with our past. And he cites important artists, and among them is someone like Imance Tillers, and he, with many other scholars, positions a kind of antipodean postmodernism. Is it possible that we are the most postmodern place on the planet? I know we don't talk about postmodernism much anymore. It's kind of been eclipsed by broad discussions of contemporary art. But is it possible that we are still one of the most postmodern places? That we are addicted to re-auditioning the past to a type of revisionism? And I'm thinking about this through the lens of our diachronic or cross-time curatorial practice that we have embraced as part of our signature here at the Art Gallery of South Australia. You're all well aware that when you walk through our galleries, both sometimes in terms of our temporary exhibitions and versus Rodin, curated by Lee Robb last year was a very good example of this, but also through, of course, our collection displays, time becomes much more of a boomerang than an arrow. So I'd love to unpack that with you 
and with our artists for whom time is, has been an extraordinarily kind of potent force. Can I ask you in welcoming, to join me in welcoming Timothy Horn up to the lectern? Thanks, Tim. I've been thinking a little bit about how Tim's work looks at the present in order to ascertain if we do indeed have a future. And I'm thinking, I'm kind of hoping, that he'll make sense of that as he presents. Julie, why don't you come? Can you and I sit here? We can benevolently smile at everybody. <laughs> Wherever you like. I'm going to turn off my mic so you don't hear my heavy breathing. OK. Is mine working? Yeah. yeah. OK, great. OK, well, thank you. Um, thanks, everyone, for, for coming this morning. Um, I just wanted to thank, uh, firstly, Erica, um, the, uh, for uh, including me in the binding. Um, it's a great honour and a great joy um, for Lisa for um, writing a beautiful, thoughtful essay as, as part of the catalogue, and just thanking um, everyone associated with AGSA uh, for this incredible event. Um, so my first image, so I'm going to present 10 images and just talk uh, generally about the work that I've made um, over a 30-year period. Um, this first image is of my uh, mother's family, my, gran my grandmother. Um, so the image on the far left, that's my grandmother and her siblings um, dressed up to go to a country um, fair. Um, my grandmother's on the far left. She's actually dressed as a village dandy. And um, so that's her on the, on the right, uh, in the middle. Uh, so this is sort of like circa 1920. Um, and then on the, on the right-hand side, that's also my grandmother dressed in her brother's best Sunday suit. So she was a bit of a trickster. And um, when I uh, went, I returned to, to study in uh, 1998. I went back to school to study glass. I had previous studies of sculpture from the 1980s, um, but had the opportunity to go back to school and uh, began sort of thinking about what direction I wanted my work to go in. And um, took um, some family history as a, as a starting point. <clears throat> um, so notions of um, gender and um, identity were, were part of that package. So um, I was reading things like um, Angela Carter's um, fairy tales, which were these um, feminist uh, rewritings of, of fairy tales that um, weren't um, sweet and fluffy, but more sort of um, gruesome and grisly. And um, a, uh, a feminist uh, essay by Colette Dowling called The Cinderella Complex. And I used that title um, for a body of work uh, which explored... Um, for me, it was like a, a, a retelling of the Cinderella myth from a queer perspective. So I selected a series of objects that I wanted to work from. Um, I'd also uh, spent a bit of time in Paris in, in the mid-90s. Um, I took a break from making art and uh, went and taught English for two years in Paris. And I didn't have a studio. I uh, did a lot of drawing, but it was, also, it was sort of like a research time for me. 
and I discovered the patterns of 18th century jewellery by um, Gilles Le Garre and uh, collected these, these images and uh, this really became the source material for this, for this work. So the piece on the right, uh, sorry, on the left, it's called Pussy's Bow and it's just under a metre in, uh, in width. It's, uh, and it was really one of the first glass pieces I made. Um, so I, coming from sculpture, I had um, some, some skills working in foundries, uh, working with metal, um, and I was able to translate some of those skills into working with glass. So uh, Pussy's Bow, it's made of um, hundreds of uh, cast crystal elements set on a bronze matrix, which is nickel-plated. And then on the, on the right is uh, Glass Slipper Ugly Blister. It's, uh, and um, so that, this piece is using um, that original Le Garre pattern and cut and pasting it into, into a slipper form. So it has a solid crystal heel and um, the color was introduced with uh, Easter egg foil. It, I was, making this piece around about Easter time and playing around with some foil and um, stuck some foil behind a, a piece of cast crystal and not only did it colour but it uh, colour the um, crystal but it um, increased, it, it gave it this kind of lovely um, lustry uh, reflection. Um, this is another piece from that time uh, called Boy Germs and <laughs> It's a, um, so it's after a, uh, a 15th century Medici pendant, uh, which is called the Sirenetta, and uh, I gave, the, which is a, a mermaid um, holding an hourglass and a, a scepter. And uh, so I was, uh, in, in the mid-90s, I was traveling in Florence and um, waiting um, on the steps of the um, Pitti Palace for the museum to open. And uh, there was a poster um, for, for a jewellery ex exhibition. And I made, so I made a quick drawing um, of that. This was before digital cameras or phones. Uh, so I made a drawing of the, uh, from the poster of this image. And it, it's something that really stuck with me. And uh, I, when, when I, when the museum opened and I um, got my ticket to go in, um, that uh, the jewellery uh, house was closed. So I never actually got to see the, the original piece in person, but um, I had the, this sort of memory of, um, from, with this drawing, which was, which uh, w when I went back to, um, when I had this opportunity to, to work with glass and work with metal, I was able to um, start making this piece. Um, so it's, this is large. It's, uh, it's probably, it's uh, probably about a metre and a half in, in total length. This is just a, a detail of the image. Um, and uh, so for the, I guess the content that I inserted into this piece, I wanted to um, give the Sirenetta a, a sexual reassignment. Um, so she became a merman. And, um, the, uh, and for me, it, it, it represented something about um, gay culture in the 90s. Um, that was all about kind of pumped up muscles and um, no, notions of um, age within, within the gay community. Um, when you're, I, I was um, probably 30, 34 when I made this and uh, when you're over 30 
in the gay community. <laughs> it, it feels like you're 90 in some ways. <laughs> so um, anyway, so yeah, so this is uh, nickel-plated bronze, uh, lead cast lead crystal with um, gold foil behind, and um, you can just see a peep of a, um, um, a mirrored blind glass pearl on the bottom. Uh, so I received a Sam Stake scholarship in 2002 and went to the US just to study for two years. And um, I went thinking, I, I specifically applied to a school that had a glass program, thinking I was going to make glass. But um, I, one, one of the things of um, travel and study was just having this opportunity to um, explore new, new directions. And uh, I was... I'd seen some work in transparent rubber, and um, it had really kind of given me uh, a hankering for for, for trying trying some some uh, making some work with rubber. Um, I'd also read an account of the uh, the amber room, which had belonged to Catherine the Great. Uh, it was a, uh, an 18th century um, cabinet. It was um, in completely. Um, outfitted with amber, carved amber, amber panels. Um, the, uh, so that, that room stood intact for 250 years until the Second World War when the Nazis invaded Russia and uh, wrenched the panels from the wall and carted them off to a castle in, in Germany. Um, at, the end of the war, at the end of the Second World War, early in 1945, um, when the Allies were uh, encroaching upon, uh, upon Germany, the, um, the castle, there was a fire at the castle, and uh, the panels were never discovered, although it's believed that they probably perished into a tragic kind of gooey mess. Um, so I was, um, the, I was really uh, in, inspired by that, that, um, that story to um, recreate some amber-coloured objects. And I uh, used Thomas Chippendale, actually, the 18th century designer, as my model. Um, so I, uh, he published his designs in a book called The Gentleman's Director. And I took these images and uh, recreated these forms in wax and then made really complex uh, rubber moulds and cast these into a into into this amber-coloured transparent rubber. So the piece on the left is um, called Mutton Dressed as Lamb. Uh, uh, John Berger wrote a, a, an essay um, about plastics in his Metamorphosis book, and he talks about how plastic has this alchemical um, element. Um, so I was really uh, intrigued by. Plastic can either be a, it can be a bucket or it can be a diamond, and I was I liked that uh, range of possibilities. On the on the right is um, silk purse sow's ear, um, and sticking with the amber coloured theme, um, I had the opportunity to make some work for a show at the De Young Museum in San Francisco in 2008, and um, I met with the curators there, and they kept referring to a woman called. Uh, Alma Spreckles, and it uh, turned out she was the founder of the, um, the uh, Museum of Fine Arts in San Francisco. And uh, 
So Alma had been born into near poverty in San Francisco uh, at the end of the 19th century um, and had become, she was a, 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 apparently a very beautiful woman. She'd become an artist model and ended up um, becoming the mistress and finally marrying a man called Adolf Spreckles. Adolf's family owned most of Hawaii um, during that time and, uh, his, and his family amassed a huge fortune through, through sugar cropping. So Alma's, um, Alma's life was, was um, bittersweet in some ways. Um, so she, she did acquire all this wealth. She used her money to set up a museum and um, she bought, uh, she, she traveled to Europe and uh, bought, she was the first person to buy uh, Rodin sculptures outside of museums, um, which were then bequeathed to, to the Museum of Fine Arts. And um, she, however, um, she was shown, because of her low, um, low entry into, into, into this um, world, um, she was shunned by um, San Francisco society and uh, she threw a huge party um, uh, when her house was completed and uh, none of the San Francisco society folks came. Um, she also had a, a, a difficult relationship with her children. Um, so I, in, in talking with the curators, I conceived on this idea of making a, a carriage, um, which was part of my kind of um, this Cinderella, Cinderella complex ongoing theme, but somehow melded with Alma. Um, so this is a three-quarter scale carriage. So it's about... Um, uh, I, sorry, I, I think in feet and inches these days because I've been in the US the last um, 16 years. It's nine feet in, in length and six and a half feet tall. So it's, it's a bit of, it's, um, yeah, it's a bit taller than me. Um, and um, so it has a steel, steel and plywood substructure. The scrolling is um, scrunched up aluminium foil, hot glued on in place. And, um, and then the whole thing, I gessoed it so it was white and uh, painted it with acrylic medium and then flocked um, sugar onto it. So the panels have um, uh, big chunks of, of, of rock sugar. Um, I built this, I was living in New Mexico at the time um, and I don't think I could have attempted this work in a, in a humid place. Fortunately, New Mexico is bone dry and um, this, the acrylic medium um, dried overnight. Otherwise, I think it would have just um, uh, been reduced to a, a puddle of syrup. Um, it's, uh, uh, yeah, and, and the color actually come, uh, the sugar that I used was white, um, but it's, uh, I um, sprayed it with um, several um, coats of uh, shellac and that uh, built this amber color. Another um, big influence for me has been um, the work of Ernst Haeckel, who was a 19th century zoologist. And actually, when I moved to, um, to Boston for graduate study on the Samstead, um, I went to Harvard University and the Natural History Museum there and um, found the works of a contemporary of Haeckel, who had made glass models of jellyfish and other sea creatures based on, on Haeckel's studies. So Haeckel really was um, the first 
um, scientist uh, to be looking into the ocean, to be looking through a microscope and attempting to draw what he saw. Ephemeral creatures like je jellyfish. This was an era before photography. Um, so Haeckel has a bit of a checkered um, history. He um, had some radical ideas. He fell out with the church and was um, excommunicated by the Pope at the time. Um, he, there was also he, uh, fraud charges were brought up upon him where he... Uh, the, 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 the court case um, determined that he, he had, in fact, fudged some of his findings. Um, he also had um, uh, a strong belief that, that, uh, that uh, nature de depended upon symmetry. And um, I think science has kind of proven that nature is anything but sy symmetrical. We are unsymmetrical as human beings. And... Um, and, and, uh, and certainly, we, we know the laws of nature apply. Uh, the, the laws of nature rely upon mutation and other differences. So I used um, Haeckel's um, pattern of that jellyfish, the Discomedusa, to uh, make several jellyfish. Um, one, one of which is most fabulously in the. Um, uh, Sam Stag Museum just down the road, and thank you. I will always be thankful to the Sam Stag Museum for that. Um, this, these, uh, these two are from a 2006 show in New York. Um, this, the large jellyfish is nine feet in diameter and about six feet in length, and it weighs um, about uh, 400 kilos, I think. So it's, this is the big sister to um, the, the Disco Medusa in, uh, in the Samstag Museum. Um, so Haeckel, he, he built a house for himself called the Villa Medusa. And I was also interested in the, the, the Greek myth of um, Medusa and its association with the Gorgon. And uh, so it's a story of, of rape and, and love and revenge um, and sort of winding some of the, that, those currents into, into this work. It also has, it feels kind of ominous to me, like a huge storm cloud approaching. So there were sort of multiple associations. It's even, I don't, it even feels um, a bit uh, like Armageddon in some ways. Uh, this is a Japanese screen by, um, by 17th century uh, screen painter Kano Sansetsu. Um, it's a work in the Metropolitan Museum of Art, and uh, it's something I have, have been obsessed with for, for, for a while, and, and this has been feeding um, my current work. Um, there's, uh, it, it's loaded with Taoist symbols. It um, signifies time. Um, the tree is, is dormant, or has been dormant and it's just springing into blossom, so it's at that point before it's flowering. Um, there are these lovely little details, like um, uh, uh, clusters of lichen that, that have invaded the, the bark, and um, just the, the, um, the, the aspiration of growth and the, the, this sort of um, tempering of, of, um, of form. So I um, used 
Yeah, so <laughs> I am um, sorry, they're, they're out of sequence, but in any case. So the piece on the left is, um, that's another um, pattern by Haeckel, and it's a work I made back in 2002. It's a, uh, it's a large piece, it's about four feet in length. Um, it's lead crystal with purple foil behind, it's called, called, called Purple Rain. And um, so the, the work that I've made over the last decade has been really combining um, these two sources, um, the 17th century patterns with um, forms from nature. And um, so the piece on the right is, is one of the works in the biennial. Its title is um, Tree of Heaven 7, and its subtitle is Trident. And um, so I was playing around with this. Uh, I was looking, looking at um, tree forms, and I came across images of a, a tree in the town of Chernobyl in um, Poland. And um, the tree has a, a strange history. During the um, Second World War, um, members of the resistance were hung from this tree, so it has a, a sad resonance with it. Um, during the Chern Chernobyl disaster in the 80s, um, the tree actually died, but it's, it's been preserved as a memorial. Um, so I, uh, in, in, in transforming or in, in translating um, the, the the um, Le Garret pattern, I um, gave it sort of more of an uplifted um, trident feeling uh, in, in something sort of transcendent. And the, uh, the uh, grafting on, onto this pattern are of um, studies of lichen. And uh, this is my final image. Um, this is... Um, this is the, uh, another work from um, uh, the Biennial. Uh, this piece, piece was just completed in January and shipped off a couple of weeks ago. Uh, it's called Gorgonia 15. And um, it, uh, this, this, this piece directly relates to the um, Kano Sansetsu image that I showed um, from the Japanese screen. Uh, this is actually, it's, it's so I, Similar to um, the Logare patterns where um, I took, took the bow image and cut and pasted it into, a, um, in, into that shoe form, um, the glass slipper. Um, again, I, um, in, in a somewhat irreverent way, cut and pasted um, the um, Kano Sensetsu into this, uh, in, into this form. And uh, the uh, so there are many there there are many references with this piece. Um, I so I maintain I guess maintaining the um, the constellation of the pearls that are a reference to Lugare, but uh, continuing this invasion of, of natural form. Beautiful. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, Tim. <laughs> Thank you. We thought it would be such a great opportunity and I could tell that you're enjoying the presentation because Tim, as he said, has been working and living overseas for the last 16 years. So his work is uh, not as well known in Australia as it should be. Really absolutely stunning. There are some resonances here in the South Australian collection. We do have a Kano screen, which is a sister screen. 
painted by the son, I believe, of Carlos. It's um, a father-in-law. Father-in-law. There you go. So family member. So there are some really lovely local res resonances. An astonishing practice. You'll have an opportunity to, of course, explore the work downstairs. Now, just serendipitously, Timothy's work shares both time and space with the work of Julie Goff. And Julie needs very little introduction in Australia. She has become one of the most extraordinary voices in articulating and questioning the future of the past. Please join me in welcoming Julie Goff. On, on, I'm on. Um, I'd firstly like to pay my respects to the Ghana people, whose country I'm fortunate to be visiting, and uh, to thank Erica very much for this opportunity to be exhibiting in this biennial, and for Lisa for essay and much more besides. Thank you. Uh, so yeah, a bit of a run through. Just I think three works that. Uh, show my obsession with trying to work out what has happened in, in particular, Tasmania's past, uh, our country, which is my mother's maternal line back, we don't know how far, 45,000 years is the last uh, date found by archaeologists. So it's as good as forever on my mum's side. My dad's a Scottish immigrant to Australia post-World War II, um, so yeah, I, our island has so many names, but for us it's Trawana, is uh, one of the names by which we know our country, Tasmania. So yeah, this is a, a work a few years back where I was fortunate to have my first overseas uh, solo in Cambridge, and it was interestingly in the Museum of Archaeology and Anthropology, uh, where I was uh, offered the opportunity to uh, look at the collections and they have a large number of stone tools from Tasmania and what I find is uh, when I leave Tasmanian shores and, and look for our culture there is a lot of it dispersed in museums so it seems like a sort of secondary habitat not through you know any desire it's just the way it's not that I find that I have a, a, a passion for museums it's, it is really where our, our objects end up being uh, since the 1830s they've been transported overseas and alongside cultural objects, our actual ancestors. So a lot of the objects I look at, I'm thinking, like metaphorically, they are also our people, and also they are our, our country. So tons of stones, um, more than 12,000 artifacts are in overseas museums, stone tools. So it's, it's literally our, our ground is sort of lost ground overseas. So I, make a, I seem to be making a lot of video work in, in, since about 2009, because I find that it's, um, it's practical. It's a way for me to, to um, kind of reconnect objects and story with place, people, sound, bring sound to objects. So the versatility of video is very um, alluring for me. And so this is where I found a, a, quite a lot of the Tasmanian artifacts had names on them of places, though they are the European uh, place names brought to Tasmania. This gave me the opportunity to think about repatriation, which is pretty much still a taboo subject, particularly overseas, in terms of returning cultural objects to communities. For, for me, I think there is a potential for that to happen with stone tools, because they seem to have uh, less value than they, than they did in the um, 
19th century when it was an early 20th century when there was a, a, a passion by collectors to try and uh, or suggest that Tasmanian artifacts were some they matched with Paleolithic European object or stone tools so there was some, it was really about European history being validated through our objects and they've kind of lost their currency in a way overseas so my dream is that our lost ground will come home and as part of that sort of uh, I suppose relationship I'm having with trying to um, broach this subject and, and bring objects home in the meantime metaphorically I, I brought back to Tasmania the photographs of the tools and and so this is just a couple of images but there's a video work which is online about the attempt to bring them home and, and place them so it's I think a lot of my work is, is slightly strange because you might find it sometimes it's humorous sometimes it's horrific and I'm trying to test test ground I suppose at the same time like how do you look at, at something that's so disturbed and try to make sense of it in, in contemporary world where I, I drive around and uh, engage with fences and gates and people that you know think I should be arrested and others you know don't. So um, <laughs> so this is some stills from the replacing, uh, taking home, uh, which was I suppose these works then become for me and more and more family members being involved find it a way to. In, in a strange sense, we were returning to country through actions like this. Uh, and art is an interesting um, structure to work within or discipline because uh, you seem to also get away with more as an artist. So if I have a camera and I say I'm an artist, it's, it's less threatening. <laughs> and so I find that I'm... Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So that, so that I do manage to... Yeah, undertake perhaps more than I would if I didn't have that label so I tend, so I'm happy to keep, keep saying I'm an artist for the time being because it's a facilitating this journey uh, similarly access to collections it's artist is useful so uh, in this instance at the British Museum I was able to visit our kelp water carrier the only one um, which is a traditional Aboriginal bucket made of bull kelp uh, Southern Oceans still have that, but it's depleting greatly due to climate change. So this uh, beautiful, small uh, water carrier survives, and until it was put online by the British Museum um, about 2009, I think, it wasn't uh, realised by our community to have survived since 1851 when it went over for the Great Exhibition in London at the Crystal Palace. So it was a huge, uh, huge... Uh, it was... Well, yeah, it was uh, earth-shattering, so we should have sort of a waters parting comment, but it's something that in our community was that, wow, we can actually create these again from the real object, because until then our, our um, women in particular were making them uh, from the French etchings. So we had only two-dimensional form to relate to make our kelp carrier again, and now this, and there's a shift because there's two different forms. The French uh, etching of these are a different shape to the actual surviving one. So I created a, a, a one of my own from the kelp where I believe the kelp was collected for the one that's held in London. And when I made this work, so a couple of years ago, it came out to the National Museum in Canberra for the exhibition touring um, of the collections of the British Museum. So I created a video, <coughs> the video that you saw the stills from are about me visiting the, uh, the, the object in London. And, and matching it with the sound and the place 
in the footage of where it had once come from and the country, the plant, the handle I made, uh, in this desire that it could come home. Uh, it only made it as far as, as Canberra and then back to London. So th this is, for me, the, the sort of terrible uh, truth of, of uh, objects held elsewhere. Is, uh, so very few of our people have seen this yet, but um, in the last uh, couple of months, there's negotiations to bring it back for a long loan to Tasmania. So. That's a fantastic, um, very recent outcome. Because for me, uh, yeah, again, time, what is a long loan? You know, it could be forever. Yeah. Let's hope. Yeah, and then what is a loan? You know, paperwork can get lost. <laughs> yeah. So, um, so there's, um, this is an earlier work, which is before I started a video. So, in fact, this may have become a video if I'd picked up a camera by this day, but I hadn't. So I was responding to a journal uh, entry of George Augustus Robinson, who was a missionary in Tasmania, paid by the government with vast quantities of land to remove Tasmania Aboriginal people offshore to Flinders Island. This is the kind of postscript of what happened. Um, he was blundering around and, and suggesting all kinds of uh, potential outcomes, and that was the outcome. So uh, two of my direct ancestors died in isolation exile on Flinders Island, northeast Tasmania, off northeast Tasmania. Uh, uh, during the time of Robinson's engagement, uh, Tasmanian government also undertook a military campaign, uh, military operations against the Aboriginal inhabitants of Van Diemen's Land to drive everybody, Aboriginal people, uh, in the settled, so-called settled districts to Tasman Peninsula and ship them off to Flinders Island. Uh, their campaign, that campaign was less successful in numbers than Robinson's. So his journal, this entry, shows the date that he decided to issue slops, which are trousers, clothing to Aboriginal people, and, and then he, he rendered them satisfied with these. He played the flute. He's sort of a Pied Piper, sinister Pied Piper figure. And so in this work, I, I had the trousers. A lady in the CWA made the trousers for me, which is quite... Anyway, they're very versatile if you go into CWA shops. And, <laughs> And, uh, and then I ran at the same places where the rations and the um, firearms were issued in Tasmania for the campaign. So just saying, I, ca I, I can revisit, I can not reenact as much as for me, inhabit place through time and feel it by being there. So that's part of my, I suppose, principal reason for undertaking these kind of works. And I'm showing a few works with me in them for some reason. The, the work that's here in the gallery at the moment only has my hand, so I'm kind of retreating from being in them so much and hopefully other people who like being in front of the camera more, but it's kind of because I end up on these <clears throat> like these uh, journeys where it's me and the tripod and, and I don't seem to have many willing victims to participate uh, because it's always uh, dependent on weather and where I am and so yeah, I like, end up playing the part I suppose. This was uh, this film is also online where I'm trying to travel back, I am trying to travel back through time to uh, Highfield, the, to the home of the, the um, Van Diemen's Land Company in far north west Tasmania. This was a, a stronghold of, uh, of uh, really there's a un, it's unpublished, unfindable events that happened to eradicate, to eradicate Aboriginal people in that region. So I end up stalking this place. Uh, it's a bit of a dream sequence, and I'm also eventually deciding to bury the journal of George Augustus Robinson because it's, 
it just is it, transfixing me and holding me too much. And this is part of my problem: is how to get away from European uh, or you know British and others versions of our past, even transcriptions of their own words. It's a certain amount of information is provided, but it can take you away from yourself and your and your own culture. You start to doubt that you've felt something. You think you may have read it instead. So these are part of the issues with. Um, so long a, uh, a history that's co-joined between Aboriginal and colonists. And interesting too, with Tasmania having such a convict past, that more than, more than 75% of Tasmanians today have convict ancestry. Uh, but it's, uh, I feel like it's something strange where we're parallel and Aboriginal people know who they are and their families are, but convicts don't often, they're still there but don't know, sort of. So, so this inattention or unwillingness to, to continue with us and work it through, it's sort of like a visitation by academics now, not who's been with us all along. So part of what I'm trying to do is establish more uh, dialogue and possible projects with, um, with uh, I suppose, descendants of, of families that have been with us because there's more people willing to engage, but it's more a quick conversation at a cafe rather than let's, let's move it on and think more about um, where we were all at and how we've got to where we are today. Um, <clears throat> so, yeah, I think this is the last slide, which is a recent work where the prints ended up being in a group exhibition here. The prints are of, of, of a published, they're kind of evidence of massacres in Tasmania. So there's over... 160 events, and, and it's, it depends on how you might look at the term massacre, but I think if it's more than a deliberate killing of more than a couple of people, you're kind of in massacre mode, as far as I understand it, or feel it. So I, I chose 10 of these and placed these around Tasmania to kind of, I suppose, be at the place, the places, and, and for the places to know that this is not forgotten and we are still here. So it's, a, it's along the same kind of journey line of returning the stone artefacts, but to more uh, seem quite grim places that can be very beautiful still. Uh, so this video uh, is large, as though you can walk into it when it's projected. Um, and yeah, this also gave me the opportunity to learn printmaking to some extent, which is what I'd like to do is keep expanding my skills so I don't end up locked in video forever, but retreat back out, because I enjoy making sculpture as well when I can and natural materials. I really like the idea of reconfiguring those, particularly. So, yeah, that's, that's just kind of brief foray into me and video, pretty much, but thanks. Thank you so much, Julie Goff. We haven't got a lot of time, but I do want to unpack with your engagement the role of the, the past here, because I think what's become evident is that for neither Julie nor Tim, the past the past is not past. It has not passed, and it plays a role uh, in a kind of repatriation, in a redirection. I loved what you just said then about a kind of reclamation of the past, a freedom from those from the colonial hold of forms of representation. And for you, Tim, I'm thinking about well, Gilles Legare, uh, obviously, and Haeckel, but. Perhaps most poignantly, because I, because I wasn't aware of it, your family history mm. and the way in which the, uh, an excavation of the past can help with the kind of way of loosening up the way we think, particularly around gender. Mm -hmm. 
So I, I kind of want to, I mean, I think that both of your presentations have so beautifully articulated how the past is constantly remaking itself. And to kind of paraphrase Homi Baba, he talks about the future of the past as being contingent and unstable. And we are culturally, all of us, constantly remaking that past. Do either of you want to kind of... I mean, you've spoken a lot about the past in various ways, but is there a sense to which your time travelling, um, you feel as though there's a, a key point of inception or a wellspring for that time travelling that you both seem to do? <laughs> do you like that? Okay. You go first, right. Tim. I'll, I'll, I'll respond. Um, so, yeah, like, when I, when I discovered those um, images of my grandmother, they were really important to, mm. to me because it, it was like a validation, in a, in a mm. sense, um, that, that it was okay to be me. Yeah. And, um, and it's interesting that it was, like, the 1920s, which was, you know, fairly progressive time. Mm. The women, you know, were, were cut their skirts and bobbed their hair and things like that. And, uh, and my grandmother... She was a wild woman in, in, in those days. And then she got married and just kind of fell into a very kind of tra traditional role. Mm -hmm. and, and, and sadly, it wasn't a happy marriage, and she really struggled with that. Um, and um, anyway, I, I, she, she died when I was about five. She died of, of breast cancer, unfortunately. But, but I have good memories of her. Mm. And for me, it's, it's like... It's, it, it was a feeling of that spirit. You know, mm. she, she herself wanted to go to art mm. school. Um, she was really passionate about um, uh, 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 clothing, mm. and she, she wanted to, to go and study fashion, I think, and, and, but she didn't have that opportunity. So um, how interesting that your practice continues I some know, of her interests. I, yeah, exactly. And it's, it becomes curative for you, yeah, healing yeah. for you, yeah, but also yeah. an extension of that family history. Yeah. And I actually think that's probably... There's a story connection there for you, Joy. Yeah. Mm, yeah, definitely. Yeah, definitely. It's it's just it's um, there's more and more uh, people around Tasmania, Aboriginal people. Um, I think also working, walking, and working in similar ways to myself, but not necessarily like this, this idea of labelling it as art. Mm. But yeah, the opportunity for people to become be creative when there's been a lot of uh, focus on necessarily. Hardline, you know, like actual repatriation of our ancestors or land, land looking after land, land return. Yes. So it's it's um, for me, I think, uh, I, yeah, I've been fortunate, but probably negligent in being part of the the hardcore. And a lot of people who've been in the hardcore are now able to breathe and and be creative. So yeah, it's feeling pretty good now where things are at, except. Uh, this weekend, elections and uh, ever-present danger of the Tarkine and our the Tarkanya, our um, also Midden, our living places being destroyed. So it's kind of, we, we've always always got something to really work on. That's you yeah. know we can't separate it from our, ourselves. And so the country aspect of protection is uh, ever ever-present danger for us. But yeah, a lot more people are involved in the arts and it seems um, amazing where we're at. I suppose I went sideways, but that's my sort of extended family. No, that's fantastic. Yeah. And it leads yeah. me to think about the environment and I think about the kind of oceanic connection between the two of you because the sea, mm. Mare, has been a really powerful place and site for both of you and the, from the bull kelp 
and there are some wonderful, a wonderful, wonderful in the video that Julie has downstairs. The the representations of the bull kelp, the imagery of the bull kelp on the east coast is just mm. so extraordinary. And of course, what that's meant is a recurring emblem for you. And then the animus that's inherently there, mm-hmm. you know, the the siren, the gorgon, what mm-hmm. that means, and then this idea mm-hmm. of that return of the bull kelp carrier. That was I, I mm-hmm. profound moment that that artists were drawing upon the Bodan expedition and those renderings, yeah. and now through that kind of at least conceptual rep- repatriation, mm-hmm. the return of that object has reframed the future. Well, yeah, once it's home, people can... They're still drawing from the photograph of the, contem- the one in the museum in yeah. London, but when it gets back to Hobart, to be able to walk around something and really be there mm-hmm. is... Uh, yeah, yeah, it's... So, yeah, things are looking more positive than they have. Brilliant. Have we got a question or two? It's getting warm in here. I can see you with your fans out. And I have called for the AC to be just turned up a bit, so it will start to cool down, everybody. (laughs) Um, Have we got any questions from the audience? We've only got a couple of minutes, and we're going to take a little breather. Our next panel, chaired by my colleague Lee Robb, starts at 11.30. But if you've got some questions or some provocations, Ross... Can I ask you, you right, Celeste? Just here in the front row. I say I've got a loud voice. You do, but we still need to record it. Oh, I see. Um, look, what a really engaging, interesting talk from everyone, sorry, uh, from Julie and Tim. And I, amongst all of the, you know, the inspiration in it, it's interesting to learn about the ideas base behind what you actually present. Mm. Mm. And, um, and I like the way Julie, uh, at the end, talked about how much, quite apart from her documenting process, how much she enjoyed the making of things. Mm. And, and that was terrific. Mm. And just on that subject, Tim, uh, in your Cinderella carriage work, which is just amazing, and it's beyond comprehension how you did that. I'd be curious to know where it is now. Does it still exist? Yeah, yeah, it's um, it's actually going... It's going to be in a touring exhibition um, later this year. You've got it at home. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. But there was an aspect... It's it's one of those albatrosses around my neck. (laughs) (laughs) There was an aspect to the image which showed... uh, Drawings behind, uh-huh. which I thought were rather nice, actually. And mm. I've, one doesn't particularly think of you mm. as a, a drawer or a draftsman, but uh-huh. to my eye, they were very elegant. Mm. And I just wonder if you want to say something about that process in the context of making uh-huh. beyond just finished thing, mm. the process that goes to it. Um, yeah, sure. I mean, a lot of my work, I think... Um, was certainly what, what the work I'm making now it, it uh, I draft patterns and uh, and it's a way of um, dealing with scale um, realize, seeing it's I guess it's like creating a model a scale model but two-dimensionally um, and uh, and certainly that that was the same that was the case with the carriage I drafted a, a scale model on paper with the carriage the carriage is based on a an 18th century um, design by uh, a man called Haberman. And um, so I projected that image and drafted, a, drafted the carriage at the scale which I felt 
was appropriate. I didn't want it full scale. I wanted it three quarters, like mm. a child, uh, for, for a child to fit in, not, not an adult. Mm. And you normally work the other way, of course. Yeah, I mean, the exactly. shock realisation. Yeah. Yeah. You yeah. know, we've been looking at Tim's work as reproductions in the catalogue and online, and then you walk into that space, and I'm sure you will all have that moment of that uh, upscaling and, and what that means for a bodily kind of encounter and reception mm. in the space. Th those are the rules of pantomime. Oh yeah. Um, you know, we're, we're, Minimize, we're the maximize. Inverted and yeah. So what's mm. what's what's small is big. What's big yeah. is small. That's good. You all now know the rules of pantomime. <laughs> in the interests of keeping you all cool and preparing you for the next panel, please join me in thanking our artists, Julie Goff, Timothy Horn. Thank you for joining us.